everyone, this is Jacob from Attention to Detail. We've got an interesting special episode for you today. Usually I'm very excited to record these episodes, but this one happens to be a very tough one, and it might be a tough episode for some of our listeners too, and so I just want to alert them to that right off the bat, that this is, you know, this podcast is usually meant to be an uplifting and optimistic podcast, but the classical music world this week lost, especially people my age, um, lost a really dear friend in violinist and conductor Greg Cardi passed away just a few days ago. And a lot of us in the classical music world have been dealing with the emotions of grief and loss and mourning. And so naturally, I think what a lot of us do is is turn to music. And so this episode is going to be about music and loss, grief, dealing with those emotions. And so the first half, I interviewed a, a music therapist, uh, Suzanne Hanser, who, who was a great interview, and I, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy listening to that. She had some great tips on how to use music to help with the, the grieving process, the loss process, getting through adversity. And then the second half of the episode is, is really meant to be a tribute to our friend Greg, who, as you will hear in the tribute, is, was a larger-than-life personality and affected so many people. And so I, I called upon many of my friends, colleagues in the music world to call in and suggest a piece of music that reminded them of, them of Greg or that they've been listening to, um, a piece that they've listened to in periods of of grief or of mourning. And so it's a really tough episode in a way for me to record, but I want to thank the many friends that I called on who came on, were really open and honest, free in, in talking about this tough time. The episode ended up being a little long because so many people called in and it, we've just seen how massive a reach Greg had. But hopefully this episode serves both as a exploration of music and and some tough feelings, the feelings of loss and grief, and also a tribute to a dear, dear friend in, in Greg Cardi. So without further ado, here is our episode on music and grief from Attention to Detail. All right, so I am joined now by Suzanne Hanser, a professor of music therapy at the Berkeley College of Music, uh, a great school of music just down the street from where I went at New England Conservatory in Boston. She's the past president of the World Federation of Music Therapy and the National Association for Music Therapy. She's written many books and and papers, uh, which I recommend you go check out. And I want to thank her so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Hanser. Thank you so much, Jacob. Happy to be here. All right, so I wanted to to bring you on today because I wanted to talk a little bit about this episode is about music and how we we deal with loss and and grief and mourning and all these kind of things and and I guess my first question that I wanted to ask you is um, I, I generally think uh, you know in times of of mourning or in grief, I think a lot of us listen to maybe even more music than we normally would. And for me, especially at these particular times, music tends to fall into two very distinct camps. The type of music that really puts me more in touch with the, the sadness, the mourning, they're kind of sad pieces in a way. And then there's other music that's very uplifting, optimistic. And I'm curious if, if uh, your thoughts on these two different types of music as they relate to the time of of grief and mourning, and if one is better than the other, if they afford us different things. I, I'm kind of curious, do you think this is a, is it a healthy process to listen to sad music and mournful music when you're, when you're in a state of, of sadness or mourning? Yes, so the question really is quite complex, Jacob, um, although it sounds simple. You know, should I listen to this or should I listen to that? But it truly... Um, the, the process of grief and bereavement 
uh, mourning is such a very unique process. And it's unique for every person. And sometimes, especially with, um, with, with a shocking uh, loss that comes out of the blue, unexpected loss, um, sometimes any, any form of stimulation is just too much. And you might actually want silence. And silence might uh, be just the bomb for um, for being able to to just sit with your feelings, uh, begin to not even process, but just become aware of of how you're feeling, what you're feeling, and what your needs might be. So um, for many people, especially uh, with a, a numbing shock uh, of a death, um, this can be really really very important to give yourself the space for silence. You know that, and, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. No, I, I think that's a very interesting, interesting thing because uh, I, maybe as a musician and I'm, I don't want to speak for other musicians, but my initial inclination is always to go to what I know and what I know best and what I think is the most emotional thing I do, which is making music, but I, I, yes. I almost hadn't even thought of that, that uh-huh. to just sit in silence in, in the absence of music in a way. Uh-huh. And yet, uh, as you point out, um, music for, for us, we who have been trained in music and studied music and are passionate about music, reach for music when we have an emotional need, because music can help us express. And, you know, for me, it helps me figure out what I'm feeling sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's often, you know, feelings are that that stuff, especially with the confusion and the disorientation of, of dealing with a, a significant loss. Um, you can't you can't easily tell someone how you're feeling, but you sure can play it out on your instrument if you're a musician, or you can find it in a piece of music and I guess now I'm going back to your question about music that might be considered sad music that sort of evocative music of of deep feelings and sometimes we need that affirmation yes that's how I feel because in the confusion of especially at the initial reaction to a loss um we, we don't know what's going on. We can't ground ourselves. But if we can find a piece of music that speaks to us, that resonates, that somehow expresses that which is inexpressible, as, as some have said, um, then, we, then we find comfort in knowing there's an empathy there. Even though music is not a person, the music becomes a sort of object for projecting our feelings or for uh, just telling us, communicating to us those feelings. And yet there are times when we need a respite, we need a diversion, we need something to refresh us. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about when I've encountered loss in in my life and I, I, um, I was ready to leave the silence and move into music and I would just let my hands play whatever it was at the piano and somehow it, it went to the impressionists it went to uh Debussy and Ravel and and some of the the consonants that I needed and for the um the 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 beauty of the um uh, of the unresolved um and cloudy nature uh, of some of the uh, harmonies, and um, and and then there were times when I needed something like Bach. You know, the fugues remind me of the, the complexity of life, the continuous the continuous nature of, of life. Life moves on, life goes on. Um, there's a resolution. Uh, in Bach's music, a simplicity and a complexity that somehow speaks to what grief is for me. And that I, can, I find really fulfilling. If I find a piece of music that I can either just listen to 
take it in to help me figure out what's going on with me and what feels good, what feels right, or if I can play or improvise uh, at my instrument and find a way to communicate. This is what's going on for me. I can hardly put it into words, but I can definitely put it into music. Yeah, you know, I find that I, as you were talking, I, it, it's really interesting because, um, you know, you hear it so often as a musician that, or as a non-musician, that, that music can express things that, that words can't express. And mm-hmm. that's something I think I, I, I'd certainly believe in, but, but I don't know that I, um, you, you know, you, you don't notice that so much maybe in your daily life, at least I don't. But then there are moments like this where it's very, I, I found it very interesting, you know, it, um, so many people around my age in the classical music world knew Greg. And so he, he was a, a presence in so many people's lives and everybody is dealing with this. And I've spoken to so many people and there are very few words, you know, you kind of, everyone knows what, what everyone is going through to a certain extent and very little is said in a way, but we've also talked about musical tributes and, uh, stuff like that. And, and I'm having a bunch of guests on to, to choose short pieces that, that they think of when they think of Greg or right. that they, oh, beautiful. Yeah, and it's but it's what what's been incredibly uh, surprising to me is that it's so many people have the the exact same ideas or that the the stuff that you're trying to express actually manifests itself in a few very key pieces of music and and people seem to agree on that so it's not really it's like we all we all feel it in Elgar's Nimrod from the Enigma Variations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just, you don't have to say anything. It's just like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're feeling. Um, yes, yes. So I, I look at music as kind of an emotional processor. It, it goes right to the limbic system in our brains. The limbic system is the, the primitive part of the brain that is nested underneath uh, the cortex. And, you know, the frontal cortex is processing, analyzing, is is giving us the words to express things. But in the limbic system, you might say we're kind of responding from the heart. We don't have to think about it. We know that this is going to move us deeply, such as Nimrod, the, the music that you're talking about, and that music that that whether we perform it, improvise around it, listen to it, it it's without censorship, without limitation, it is expressing something that is deeply the essence of who we are. Well, I was, you know, I was actually, that, that gets to the question that I was just about to ask you, which is kind of why music and maybe, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about it, but is there, I think you kind of, you touched on it right there, but the idea is there, maybe you want, you already started talking a little bit about the science behind music therapy, but why is it that music is a particularly potent therapeutic tool? Do you have mm-hmm. some thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah. There, there are many ways to look at it. And um, if you just want to talk about the neurology, the brain, um, music infuses so many parts of the brain that, um, that when we, we, close our eyes and listen to a piece of music, that image that comes to mind is projected onto the, uh, by the occipital, occipital lobe uh, in, the, in the cortex of the brain, just as if we were seeing that image. And it brings to mind everything about that image, all of the sensations that we feel when we see that image. Uh, all of the memories associated with that image or that music or that time or that person who's associated with the music, um, everything comes alive. And it does it without our willing it or without our analyzing it or even intending it sometimes. It, it brings us to our, our visceral selves. We have to move to it 
We are musical, rhythmic beings. Our blood is coursing through our circulatory system. Our heart rate is is telling us when that the rhythm of the heart beat. Uh, when we are when we are breathing, we are we are rhythmic creatures. When we're walking, we usually walk in rhythm, and so we are musical. Uh, I mentioned so much of our brain, but so much of our bodies are also musical, rhythmic yes. for sure, and spiritually, those things that we can't quite understand, um, and the existential issues that come up, especially after experiencing a loss. Um, these are these are deep questions. We don't have answers, but music is amorphous enough for us to project onto it how we feel. Yeah, the music is free enough that we can use that vocabulary to express and communicate what's going on within us. That you know what you, that made me think of one one thing that I want to ask you as well, which is that I'm wondering if if you could talk briefly about, or I'm curious to get your thoughts on the idea of music and memory, and in this particular case, memory of of someone that you lost because I, um, a thread in a lot of the conversations I'll have and that our listeners will hear in the latter part of this episode is that, um, a lot of the pieces that people chose as kind of tributes to, to Greg were pieces that they actually performed with him or Mm -hmm. saw a concert of with him. And I certainly have, those memories too. I mean, I'm just thinking it's, it's incredible how when something like this happened, I can suddenly remember every performance I ever had with Greg in, in incredible detail in a way. And I'm, and I'm curious your thoughts on that. Why, why that maybe is, or that whole, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yes. That is, that is quite real. Music triggers the memories that you are uh, that you are discussing that the memories trigger all of these other sensations, associations, images. Um, again, you you can actually feel yourself there again. You can feel the chills that came with an exciting performance. You can almost feel the vibes of the audience if you were performing with Greg. And you're right there. You're connected. And you know what? What is loss? But loss of connection or loss of meaning, loss of, uh, of life, of everything that, that we live for. Uh, this, this loss is a loss that we can connect with through the music, through the shared experiences of music, uh, as you described, these musical tributes uh, to Greg, finding something that reminds them of him. You are then unified in this in this world of mourning Greg and paying tribute in a very positive, beautiful way of the of the incredible music that he created, that you created with him. Uh, that were part of who he was. Yeah, I think I think in in talking with other people, it's that's been one of the the main threads is just thinking back to because it's funny. I mean, I he's someone I lived with for for two summers and stuff like that, and I I often it's hard to remember every conversation I had with him, of course, but you remember every performance vividly. So I've I've found that. <laughs> Quite interesting. I wanted to ask you. I'm sorry um, the, the, to keep it so short because we we have a bunch of other people giving tributes as well, and I I'm wary of the episode becoming super long. But I'm curious if you could offer uh, our listeners and just in general. I, this is I'm sure this will be a massively broad question, but maybe to narrow it as it relates to. Uh, moments of grief, moments of loss, moments of mourning. Are there some music therapy 
techniques, exercises that one can do to take a healthy approach to, to something like this? And is there, is there something that you, you would recommend maybe once you've gotten past that period of, of silence, as you mentioned? It's, I, I think when I think about, um, I think a lot of classical musicians are, are a lot of people are critical of the, the classical music world, and it's one of, it's one filled with anxiety, it's one filled with pressure, um, but I have to say I can only hope that that everyone has a community that has. It's been incredible to see in light of this this tragedy how the classical music community, especially people around my age, have come out and supported each other. And uh, it's, it's just been kind of incredible in a way. And, and I can only hope, and I'm sure it's not the case, but, but it's something that hopefully we can aim for, is that, that everyone has a community like that that can rally and can really offer support to, to friends in, in times like this. Because as you mentioned, it's, it's a it helps to have other people who are, who are doing it with you. And it's also good to know, of course, you hit it right on the head. I mean, my, my uh, initial approach is obviously to not listen, in a way, not listen to any sad or emotional music because it's painful and you don't really want to do it. You want to avoid that. But it's good to know that, that doing that is healthy. Jacob are creating a community, a supportive, loving community to give tributes to Greg, to enable people to share memories uh, of Greg, to keep his talent alive, his legacy uh, of music alive by continuing to perform and to share performances. Um, of the music that was important to him. These are incredible ways, uh, very healthy ways of uh, expressing, supporting one another. These are the key to uh, healthy coping with a very difficult and tragic loss. Well, I appreciate that. He certainly, it was an immense talent and uh, an immense legacy that, that he left and will continue to leave. So, Professor Hanser, sorry to, to, to keep it short, but thank you so, so much for, for joining us today, taking a little bit of time at, at what is a, a very challenging time for everyone and uh, being so, so open with this. I really, really appreciate it. You're very kind, and I will be sure to listen in on these wonderful tributes to, right. get to, know, to get to know Greg myself. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that so much. We will uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks. So now I'm joined by Kevin Lin, incoming concertmaster of 
the orchestra that I also work for, Indianapolis Symphony, and I believe a a roommate of Greg's and fellow student at Colburn. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about um, how you knew Greg and and uh, your interactions with him. Yeah, I was I was roommates with Greg uh, my third year of undergrad at, at the Colburn School, um, and we also played in the infamous Comus Quartet. I think for all the Colburn people out there, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so we had this hammer group that was. Kind of, kind of like a joke. We kind of, you know, put it together because we were all good friends. Um, but then we ended up doing some really good work together. And then, so the piece that really reminds me of Greg is uh, based on string quartet number two in G major, opus eighteen number two. Um, it was, it was like we worked on this one piece, this, the first movement of this piece for the entire semester with Mr. Leonard, and we, we just. sounds like for you and, and for me as well and, and for a lot of people you have these really vivid memories of people who you actually played stuff with and it sounds like you, yeah. can, you can even remember very minute details of the performance because it's it's so much about the people that you're playing with and, and uh, not necessarily the music so excellent choice thank you so much Kevin for this uh, Beethoven opus 18 number 2 we'll listen to a, a little clip of that I'm joined by Claire Sems, violinist in the Toronto Symphony and longtime friend from the Aspen Music Festival, among other places. Claire, thanks for joining us. Tell us, uh, how did you know Greg? I met Greg in 2007 at the Aspen Music Festival. We were both in Miss Tanaka's studio, and I remember a lot of performances of his from that studio class. But the song or the piece I chose that reminds me most of Greg these days is Afternoon of a Fawn. We were both at the New World Symphony in 2016 to 2017, and we were stand partners for this piece. And I remember there was a section where we had like 30 measures rest, and Greg kept playing. And I was like, what is he doing? And he was just playing all of the other parts in the orchestra. In, and it was hilarious. In the concert? Like, yes, he did it in the concert, too. Oh, my goodness. It was like in rehearsal. He knew that I got... I thought it was hilarious. So he obviously played off of that. <laughs> and when he wasn't playing along with the other parts, he was always conducting. So he made <laughs> pretty much the most entertaining stand partner I can only imagine. I mean, I also sat with him several times uh, as stand partners, and very impressive guy. Not only, I mean, testament to how well he knew these pieces, but also multifaceted, playing all the parts, conducting along. Very impressive. So, excellent choice. Um, did you did you ever? I'm curious. Did you ever play like in court? Was that the only time you performed with Greg, or did you ever play in a quartet with him, or anything like that? I don't think I ever played chamber music with him. It was mostly an orchestra. I played in his um, conducting debut at New World when he put together an orchestra to play a Mozart divertimento. Oh, very nice, very nice. So you got you got a little taste of of the violinist and the conductor. Well, excellent choice. Here's a little bit of Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. Mm-hmm. 
Alright, I am back now, joined by Radu Paponio, uh, Associate Conductor of the Naples Philharmonic, Naples Orchestra. Which one? Sorry, should have researched before. Which? What's What's the uh, orchestra actually the called? Naples Philharmonic. Naples yeah, Philharmonic. <laughs> My apologies. Associate Conductor of the Naples Philharmonic, fantastic violinist as well, and my only classmate at the New England Conservatory of Music in the conducting program. Thanks for coming, Radu. How did you uh, know Greg? First, thank you for inviting me, Jacob. And I first met Greg at the Aspen Music Festival in 2010. And little did I know that we were uh, going to become very, very close friends because we both uh, attended the Colburn Conservatory for the next uh, four years. And we were in the same studio together and we really became very close friends by being uh, practice buddies. For four years, we always practiced in the same part of the building. We had the same two practice rooms. And I would say almost every day we were there and talked, you know, each day about pretty much everything there is to talk uh, violin related. And I'm very happy to say that our friendship continued when he went to Juilliard. Uh, we overlapped a little bit on the East Coast because I went uh, to the New England Conservatory where you and I were colleagues and we visited each other during that period and even as recently as uh, February he visited me uh, here in Naples and we had uh, we had a beautiful day where we, we it was another study day we, we both studied, uh, studied scores and talked about so many so many different things fantastic well um so many people especially from that's been a thread is that he he knew people from colburn aspen juilliard incredibly well connected guy um so what piece did you uh did you choose here for for greg summed it up fantastically there and I also I mean this is one of the most beautiful pieces ever composed it's it's probably a kind of sad piece to listen to um there's a spot in the middle where it feels almost breathless and like you can't get get the words out and I know for me that's at least that was my uh reaction when I heard the news a little bit um yeah fantastic choice do you have any uh Memories of, did you ever play with Greg as a violinist? I did. We played together well. We played a lot in the Colburn Orchestra. We were also together in the American Youth Symphony in Los Angeles. And also for one semester uh, at school, we played in a string quartet. And that's why I thought it was so meaningful to choose a, a string quartet movement. Fantastic choice. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Here's a little bit of the, the Cabatina from Opus 130. Cincinnati Symphony and also a 
violin student from the Colburn School. So, Evan, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you knew Greg and and what piece you've chosen? Yeah, so um, I knew Greg way back from the Colburn School when we were students there together in Robert Lipsitz's studio. And I'm sure a lot of people have, you know, similar feelings when they think of a friend and, and you think of all the memories you have playing with them and spending time with them at school and summer festivals. So um, one of my most vivid memories with Greg is also a chamber music experience when we did a string quartet together at uh, the Aspen Music Festival, and that was the um, Mendelssohn Quartet in A minor. And I just remember working on that first movement with him and the rest of the quartet, and he would just always make every rehearsal so entertaining, and we end up just having so much fun together, and he's one of those people who just, like, music would never cease to, you know, keep him interested and make him excited, and he would just, it's almost like, you know, he just gets a little bit obsessed with it, but that's what was so great about him, and that's what we all like to remember. Yeah, I one of the threads that's been so um, common in my discussions with people about Greg is just that, like, so many people have chosen pieces that they played with Greg because he just made rehearsals so fun. And I think that's, for a lot of musicians, you remember, I don't know if this is true for for you, but certainly for me, you remember the most positive slash fun and the most <laughs> nerve-wracking, anxiety-provoking yeah. musical experience. That you've, and I, I would say that Greg probably uh, played a part in some of both of those types of experiences. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, well, it was, it, this is a great choice, a, a lovely piece, and uh, thank you so much for, for highlighting this. And I, I think another threat is Greg was seemed to be a mainstay at the at the Aspen Music Festival, and and that's how so many people knew him. And um, so it's 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 great to hear that you guys were were there together. So thank you, Evan, for your your choice here of Mendelssohn A Minor String Quartet. now joined by Andrew Brady, principal bassoon of the Atlanta Symphony. Um, we go way back to, to Tanglewood, and Andrew, I wanted to ask you, how do you know Greg? Uh, Greg and I were schoolmates at Colburn. Um, I believe he was one class younger than me. Um, I think that's right. And um, so, I, you know, Colburn is such a small school. Um, so I always um, kind of interacted with him on the periphery, but when I roomed with him at Tanglewood in 2012 was when I really got to know him a little bit better. I very vividly remember your guys' room. Spent a lot of time in that room. I remember exactly yeah. what it looked like. Um, so tell us, what, uh, what piece did you choose in, in tribute to Greg? So I chose Beethoven Opus 18, number two, the string quartet in G major, and specifically the first movement makes me think of Greg. Um, while I was at Colburn, um, they would have weekly performance forums, and the first time that I heard that piece was at one of those, and it was a group that Greg was playing in. Um, and, and it's just such a um, sunny movement, sunny opening, and kind of um, a lot of jokiness going on and it kind of reminds me of Greg but there's also some moments of real sincerity that are kind of lurking underneath um so I, I feel like that's kind of a good um comparison to, to Greg's personality it's just all, 
always had an ambition, fun, and wanted to make everybody laugh. But underneath, there was always some sincerity. For sure. It's funny that you chose that piece because, in fact, I think we had a member, another member of the quartet, Kevin, on, and he he mentioned that piece as well. So. Yeah, and there's another um, memory with that piece, which I don't know if he shared, um, maybe because he um, didn't want people to go look for it, but there is a video of that quartet rehearsing, um, and they were kind of just having fun, and they were slumped over chairs, and like playing their part while hanging over a chair, and like kicking their legs, <laughs> some kind of exercise or something, and um, yeah, so it was, it was just kind of hilarious, and I think um, it's just such a good um, picture of his silliness, and how he interacts with, with other musicians. I have never seen that video. I'm going to have to go check out that video right now. So excellent choice, Andrew. Thank you so much, Beethoven, Opus 18, number two for the second time. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you. All right, I'm now here with... Chaley Smith, uh, violinist, now violist, uh, who is recently a fellow with Ensemble Connect. Chaley, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about how you, you knew Greg. Thanks, Jacob. Um, it's funny that you mentioned violinist, now violist, because um, playing viola as an official violist in a string quartet um, was when I played together with Greg, it was one of my first times embarking in that role oh. in the, in the group. Um, so we, I mean, as everyone kind of understood Greg as this sort of like mythical character that would be present, um, in sort of like all areas and all circles of the music world, whether literally present there or something that every, someone that everyone kind of thought about and knew about. Um, but we, really became good friends at Juilliard when he started there for his master's. Um, and I had, you know, just switched from an official violin student to, a, to an official viola student. And so we played in a string quartet together for a year with two other friends of ours. Um, and it was three girls and Greg. <laughs> so anyone, you know, that knew him, though he, you know, <laughs> he, was, just, yeah, he was just as hilarious and, like, ridiculous no matter who he was with. That was part of what made him so special, but um, I would say in this group, there were, you know, a couple of us were a little bit more high strung. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was still getting used to being a violist, okay, so I was still a little bit wound up, um, but Greg obviously offered such a kind of antidote to the sort of anxiety or, um, you know, the stress of, of, like, rehearsing and preparing for coachings, um, and, like, looking back now, it's kind of silly to think that we assigned it as much gravity as we did, um, now that, you know, we're real adults, but it was, you know, it was our, it was really important to all of us, and, um, Greg, um, it was such, a, he had no ego in rehearsal, and his only priority was for the, was, it was always about the progress of the group, yeah, and also the progress of each musician, not so much him, but he was so supportive of each of us in a way I've never experienced at Juilliard or elsewhere um, in terms of how he would be in the, in the rehearsals um, and outside the rehearsals. And I think outside the rehearsals was even more, um, it made, made even more of an impact, you know, because when you're in a quartet together and then you go and have dinner together and you, um, you have meals and you, obviously, we got to know each other so well that we started hanging out a lot outside of the group. And, um, he was such an excellent, wonderful kind of reminder of how to enjoy yourself when in a stressful environment, kind of a pressure cooker type thing, but full of, full of love for the music and the reason we were all there together. So we played this Haydn quartet together, um, the Emperor, nicknamed the Emperor Quartet, and most, I feel like most, uh, most students in quartets are like, let's do bar talk, and let's do, you know, something really fun and very challenging, and the four of us picked Haydn, even though we were all, like, grad students. Um, I mean, Haydn is very difficult, as we all know, but sort of, like, the simplicity and love for, like, the 
you know, the beginning of uh, the beginning of quartet writing or near the beginning of it, and um, it was such a musical education as well as kind of an education in in how to be a good friend and good human from um, from Greg. So I love this choice. I also played a Opus 76 quartet with Greg at one point. Um, not this one, but phenomenal choice. And thank you so much for, for joining us, sharing your, your story about Greg. Thanks, Jacob. second violinist in the National Symphony Orchestra, former principal second violinist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Very sad to see him go. But, <laughs> Pei Ming, tell us a little bit about, how did you know Greg? Um, I knew Greg, we first met, I think, at NYSERC in 2014. Um, but then we spent two years at New York together, and that's when I really got to know him. And I remember, actually, I was, I've been thinking, obviously, back to a lot of memories of Greg, and I vividly remember a particular moment at the ISO where I, I walked on stage and I said hi to you. You were sitting at the front of the second violins, and you were like, turn around, look who's subbing this week. And lo and behold, it was Greg. So he played in your section at the ISO as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was, I think that was the last time I saw him. Yeah, that was last year, so yeah, yeah, we caught up a little bit there, but yeah, I mostly knew him at New World, and that's where I got to know him the best. That's perfect. So what uh, what piece have you chosen for us today? So I decided to pick the Schubert uh, Piano Impromptu Number 3 in G-flat major. Um, specifically, the, there's a recording of Horowitz on YouTube playing it. Um, that I really appreciated. Um, I picked this piece because I felt like it's very simple in some ways, but it's just a melody in the right hand with arpeggiated chords in the left. And, I don't know, it's not necessarily a sad piece, but it's very beautiful and very simple in some ways, but sometimes that's the best way to kind of it reminds you that there's still beauty in the world and that, you know, just like the simple things in life are what matter in the end. I think that's that's a great that's that's great. I uh, couldn't have said it better myself and I was we were talking about before we came on, this is a well known video recording because there's something about the way Horowitz plays this that is so simple and so beautiful and you know, someone else who I was recording with mentioned they, they also chose a similarly simple piece, and I also thought it was... They said that that Greg, they, they kind of thought of Greg as... There was, there was this element of uh, kind of his... There was a simplistic beauty to his being, and you just, you kind of knew what you were getting with Greg, and he was always going to be funny, and he was always going to be... Uh, joking around and stuff like that, but he was also a very deep and profound person in many ways, and I think this this piece is certainly like that. I don't know if you would agree, but... No, yeah, definitely. I feel like when you first meet Greg, you definitely get the doofiness, you get the extrovertedness, but once you get to know him a little bit, I would definitely say he, you know, he had a pure soul, he had a good heart, and he was just like a kid on the inside, you know, he, he always had the best intentions, but... I always try to appreciate him for that. Yeah, me too. And I think you've chosen a, a great piece here in the third Schubert impromptu. Couldn't have picked a better piece myself. So here's a little bit of that third impromptu in G flat major by Schubert. So I'm back with Ben Manis, resident conductor of the Houston Grand Opera, also a distinguished cellist. Uh, ben, thanks for joining us. Tell us, how did you know Greg? Uh, Greg and I went to Colburn together. He was two years older than I, 
Um, so we only overlapped for my first two years there, his last two years there. Um, and in that time, we played in a string quartet together for almost the whole two years. Um, so we spent a lot of time together. And I was going to ask you what what uh, piece you've chosen here. And I'm curious, you know, the string quartet you played in. Tell us a little bit about that. So one of the pieces that we played um, was Beethoven 18, number two. Um, and I have such a strong memory of it because we played in... Uh, performance forum at Colburn, which is uh, a big concert. You know, the whole student body is there. All the faculty are there. Um, and and we were asked to play 18 number two. Um, and we played in the first movement. Um, there's, a, there's a little solo second violin line. Greg was playing second violin. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't go great. Uh, it didn't go. It didn't go worse than any normal kind of mistake, you know. But it wasn't probably how we wanted it. Um, and we got the recording for it after the after the performance. And Greg proceeded to play this recording of his mistake uh, for everybody he knew, um, as far as I know, for the next probably almost decade. Uh, I would get texts from him, you know, after we had both been out of Colburn for years, uh, <laughs> asking me to send him this recording so that he could play it for someone. Uh, it, you know, it was one of those so endearing, so unique aspects of Greg that, uh, you know, that that he wanted to publicize his own mistakes so much. You know, I, we, so many of us try to hide them. And he went the other way, and, and it, you know, I love that about him. I, I think it's a great choice. You are not the first person to uh, choose this piece. In fact, I think we had another member of your quartet uh, come on and talk about this piece. We also had someone who I think was in the audience and was so impressed by this performance that they came on and talked about this piece. So clearly, Opus 18 number 2 made a big impression on a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just so, the way Greg handled it, you know, it was only he could have done it like that and pulled it off the way he did. It, it was amazing. And it was a, it's a funny thing in talking with other people about him and just uh, performing with him in general, and this was certainly my experience. I know that the, you know, um, a lot of times in classical music, performing is a very anxiety-wrought experience, but he had this magical ability to make it fun for everybody else you know like playing in a group yeah. with him it was really a joy so yeah it was. It well, was. thank you so much for uh, for suggesting this piece it's been a popular one and, and thanks for joining us okay thank you Jacob alright hi everyone I'm back now with Jacob Schack, violist in the Baltimore Symphony, uh, attendee with me and Greg, I believe, of the Tanglewood Music Center. Jacob, tell us, uh, how did you know Greg? When did you first meet him? And, you know, what was your friendship like? Um, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, and thank you for doing this uh, tribute to Greg. I think it's really, it'll be really meaningful to a lot of people. Um, I first met Greg in high school, actually. Um, he was a student at Walnut Hill, and uh, we were both students at the New England Conservatory prep program, and so we were in youth orchestra together, and um, so we were sort of acquaintances then, and then we reconnected when we both entered Juilliard as new master students in 2014, and um, we were pretty close friends throughout those couple of years, in addition to going to Aspen and Tanglewood together. So yeah, it was, um, we had a, a good friendship, and uh, yeah, it was a, a very, as I'm sure, has been said before, uh, a very 
unique person who loved being around people. And uh, I would often, when trying to get a hold of him in New York, have difficulty because he was constantly uh, spending time with tons of different people. And he would routinely arrive at parties, you know, after 1 a.m. and just <laughs> because, he had, because he had been other places with other people and it just uh, speaks to how loved he was and um, just how great of a person he was and how great of a friend. Yeah, he, that's certainly been a thread and I've noticed it in the past few weeks too. I mean, you kind of felt it, um, but you really see it now, just how many people he actually knew it's kind of staggering and i had forgotten that of course we also all went to aspen to get he was he was like connected in every music sphere you could possibly imagine so um what piece did you uh did you choose for us today that reminds you of greg or something like that so um i have a couple of pieces that uh i i tend to listen to when i'm feeling sadness or um or grief or any kind of like when i'm going through a difficult time uh and one of those is the third movement of beethoven's um string quartet opus 132 uh which is as a piece is my basically my favorite piece of all time um and the third movement is this gigantically long uh slow movement that Beethoven wrote um, after he had recovered from an illness that he was pretty convinced he was going to die from. Uh, and so it's a it's a, a very beautiful kind of hymn-like um, movement. It has uh, it's sort of the, the way I think about it, like it, each voice is so unique and and kind of alone throughout, um, but they intertwine in such beautiful and Beethoven-like, interesting and innovative ways. Um, I just think it's a really great movement, and it kind of gives me the feeling that like everything is going to be okay. Like that's kind of what I think of when I mm-hmm. listen to that. Um, and the other uh, piece that I that also sort of gives me that same feeling are the two slow movements um, from Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. Oh yeah. Um, the I forget the exact titles of them, but they're they're both the same title. But one of them is uh, for cello and piano, and then the very last movement of the piece is just for violin and piano. And and those two are so like spare and um just so simple but like just the most like transcendent melodies that i've probably ever heard um so yeah so those are those are two pieces that i frequently turn to uh in difficult times i think those are great choices they're 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 very similar too in a way they're the uh both very very simple um almost they're they're meant to be i think spiritual pieces but you said you mentioned to me that you also have a piece that directly reminds you of greg and i'm curious about that one as well yes i do so i have a vivid memory um at juilliard i was sitting in a in a hallway on like the fifth floor or something i think greg was like about to go into a lesson and he came like running over to me he was playing the Prokofiev's second violin concerto and he was like I guess he had been listening to a recording or something and he was so like shocked that there's this one part that in like the middle of the first page I don't really remember uh, that everyone who plays it takes that part faster than they play the beginning but there's actually there's no tempo change marked in the music and he was just like so (laughs) surprised that there's 
there's no tempo change. Like, why does everyone do that? Like, what what's going on here? He was so, like, uh, taken aback by that. And I just, for some reason, I, I will just always now, like, associate that piece with him. Um, and I think that story kind of embodies how curious he was about music. And he really was just trying to, like, figure everything out. He would ask so many questions. He was so just, like, ready to learn from anyone and anything. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was... It didn't really strike me at the time, but now that I've, like, gone back and kind of gone through my memory bank of Greg-related memories, uh, that one is pretty poignant and sticks out to me. I love it. Do you mind if we, uh, do you mind if we listen to a little of the second movement? Because I think it would go along with your simple peaceful, beautiful theme. Yeah, I love that movement. Perfect. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Jacob, sharing your memory, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. finally, I wanted to give my own piece in tribute to Greg, such a dear friend. I remember when I met him eight years ago at Tanglewood, we were put in the same quartet together, and little did I know that he would, from then on, be one of my closest friends. I think about all the memories that we've had since then until just a few weeks ago when, when I spoke to him last. And it's just a profound, profound sense of loss that, as you've heard from all of the guests and myself, we're all carrying with us at the moment. And so the piece that I've chosen, a piece that I've been listening to a lot recently is Strauss's Four Last Songs, the last piece that Strauss ever wrote uh, after a very long life looking back on his life, an incredibly nostalgic work in many ways, and also incredibly profound. I find the poetry, the lyrics of this work to also be really poignant in many ways. And I go specifically to the third movement, Beim Schlafengehen, Going to Sleep, when I think about Greg, not only because it has one of the most beautiful concertmaster solos, I think, of anywhere, in classical music, in any kind of music. Um, And of course, Greg was a fantastic violinist, and so that makes me think of him. But also, I just think about the, the past few days and grappling with such an immense tragedy. And the last verse of this poem, I think, is particularly poignant at this moment. The singer sings, And the soul, unguarded, takes wings freely, And in the magic circle of the night, Deeply and thousandfold, it lives on. And I just think, in talking with so many friends recently and and hearing all of these tributes, it's clear that Greg's impact, his legacy, will just stay with us for so much longer than, unfortunately, he was able to stay with us with his life being so tragically cut short. And... It's with a profound, profound sense of, of loss and grief that we listen to these pieces and we attempt to grapple with such a painful, painful loss in Greg. We all miss him very, very much. I hope you've enjoyed is not really the right word, but I hope you've appreciated this, this tribute to an incredible friend, an incredible musician, one who, as I mentioned, will be sorely, sorely missed.